I invite you to turn not to the New Testament letter of James. We're done there. Would you turn to the Old Testament book of Psalms, also known as the Psalter. Turn to Psalms, and we're going to go to Psalm 17. And if you don't have a Bible, we would invite you to take one of the Bibles. There's a black Bibles that should be in the chairs in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, we would, or if you don't have the version that we use, we use the English Standard Version. It doesn't matter. If you come with another version, we're glad you're reading the Bible. Let's, let, let's just dig into the Bible together. But if you need a Bible, we'd love for you to not only use it this morning, we would love for you to take it home with you, put your name in it, and make it your own. We just ask that you'd use it. We ask that you'd read it. We're in Psalm 17 this morning. It's not the 17th chapter of Psalms because the, it's, the Psalms is not divided up into chapters. It's actually divided into 150 psalms, songs, prayers, inspired by the Lord. The psalms are like a spiritual medicine chest for the heart of every Christian. And they are not only meant to be read, but they're meant to be prayed and sung, and meditated on, and memorized, and they're meant to be practiced, and consumed by the depths of our hearts. And I ask that you would pray with me that what God would grow us into Christ followers, the type of Christ followers he intends us to be through these inspired songs of scripture. I intend to continue to preach through the Psalms, If the Lord wills, over the next 10 or 15 years, I began this a year ago in November, and we went through Psalms 1 through 16, ending at Psalm 16 at Easter. We took a break, and we went into James, and now we pick up the Psalter this morning. This is the songbook of God's people. It is a prayer manual, a prayer guide from the heart of God through real Ordinary, sinning people who wrote this, yet inspired by the Holy Spirit. We're going to go through maybe another decade of Psalms starting this Sunday. And I w- I'm not sure what we're going to find in the next 10 Psalms. Where is God going to meet us each of those weeks? Would you with me pray as we hit these Psalms, Psalm 17 through 27 or 26 through the next 10 or 11 weeks or months in the next several months that God would draw our minds and our hearts to grow to have the mind of God through Christ Jesus. I pray that through his word, these Psalms, he would make us mature people, mature people that respond to the pains and the pleasures of this life with eyes of faith, that we would respond to life deeply rooted in God, in him working his word in our lives and shaping us to be the kind of people he intends for us to be. So on to Psalm 17, it's called a prayer of David. David writes not all of the Psalms, but a lot of them. And, these, and there are a few questions that I want to ask you as we get into this psalm. I asked these same questions almost a year ago, actually in January of last year. 
as we face Psalm 7. What do you do when you face an unjust situation with people? Have you ever experienced it? They lie about you, and it hurts you, and it maybe even hurts your career. It hurts your reputation. It may hurt your grades. It breaks your heart. And maybe those lies that are untrue, they're, they're a lie, and they are unfair. They have done damage to you. And maybe it's costing you money and even bringing you legal troubles. Or what do you do when you face an unexplained circumstance, un circumstances in your life that are really difficult? They're, they're called trials, afflictions that come not from people that were mean or evil to you, but just things that are really hard. Health, financial, your children bringing pain in your life, deep loss for whatever could be, and it doesn't seem fair. Or what do you do when you face heavy or constant spiritual inner battle? temptations to sin that are non-stop and it feels like Satan just keeps attacking you and your sin and your flesh and the world is just at war with you and it doesn't stop and yet you want to follow God. And, and then there are accusations that come into your mind and your conscience of your past mistakes or sins and they keep harassing you and you just can't seem to get over it. It doesn't seem fair. Well, let's walk through Psalms 17. And I, in this psalm, I want us to get an overview of, and an understanding of the psalm. We're just going to kind of go through it. it. It'll be helpful for you to have that psalm in front of you. If you walked in this morning and you received one of those bulletins that just looks like this, on the back sheet, it has an outline of where we're going to go this morning. And I want to do is walk through an outline of this psalm and just see the content of this psalm. And then I want to draw out four, I think, enduring necessary principles or truths or lessons from this psalm. In this psalm, we see a desperate cry for justice. And then we see a confident cry for protection. And then we see an urgent cry of deliverance. And then as we end this psalm, we see an intimate expression of hope, of hope. You see it there in your outline. But would you follow with me as we read Psalm 17? We're going to take it in parts. First of all, this prayer of David, we see, number one, a desperate cry for justice. And that's what we see in verses 1 through 5. This is what David says. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend my cry. That word cry could be my yell. I'm moaning. I'm yelling. I mean, I'm overwhelmed. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. 
You've tried my heart, God. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Slipped. In these first five verses, let's say this first stanza of this song, this prayer to God, David offers a desperate cry, and it's a desperate cry for justice. In these, do you see the desperation of David here? These are not unfamiliar to many of the other Psalms. When David prays and cries to God, he means it with all his heart. He is crying desperately. See the language? Hear me, O God. Have you ever said that to somebody that you needed their help? Will you listen to me? Hear me. I'm talking to you. I want you to know there is a great need. He says, hear a just cause. He cries out for vindication. I I need you to vindicate me. This idea that I have been falsely accused before the court of human Kind, they are accusing me and saying that I did something and I am under great threat because of it and I am innocent. Oh God, have mercy. God, hear my cause. Listen to me. Do you hear what he's saying? He says, attend to my cry, my howl. Let your eyes behold. Bring vindication. David calls in this psalm for justice. He says, I've been, I've been wronged. It is not right. I, in fact, he then welcomes himself, opens himself up in his prayer to God. He's saying, God, I ask for justice and I ask for investigation. You see, God, you know that I am innocent here. You know that I am not guilty of what they are attacking me of. And here he says, you've, you've, God, you've already visited me in the night. You've tried my heart. These are kind of scary words. I mean, do you want God to, to investigate your life and say, and give, give you an assessment of how you're doing? David does. He says, I have purposed... He says, I have purpose with my mouth in the midst of all of these things that I did not sin with my mouth. I did not use my lips for deceit or lying, but they have, and I am under attack. Now, you might read these verses and go, boy, I've read a lot of the Bible, Pastor Daniel, and I know that we're all sinners. How could he say that he is innocent? How could he speak about how God tries his heart and knows that he's all right with God? think the answer to here is in the answer to some of the other psalms is that like psalm 7 is that david is not saying god i am a sinless person and now you need to answer me he's not saying that that is not something any one of us other than jesus could ever pray because you see there are other psalms that make it very clear and even david sang these psalms where he said like in psalm 130 oh lord if you marked sins or iniquity oh lord who could stand not me because i'm a sinner but there is forgiveness with you that you might be feared you see david knows he's a sinner but he knows in this case 
He is being judged wrongly. It is, he is being falsely accused. It isn't really fair. And he gets on his knees. He cries out to God and he says, oh God, in desperation, oh please, would you come and hear me? You have inspected me. I have sought to be loyal to your ways. I have not been violent. I have been a leader, but I have not been the type of leader that has been violent like some are saying that I have been. My feet have not slipped. I have not turned away from you, God. And so here we find David crying out for mercy. Friends, when we face trial from people or from from just difficult trials, circumstances. We call it providence. And when we even face trials from our, our own sin consequences, we all must run to God. And when we come to this holy God, we must confess, first and foremost, our own sins to God and say, oh God, I know that maybe I'm innocent in the area they're accusing me of, I know that as I stand before you, I need your mercy. Please help me, O oh God. In this case, David is right before God. The things that his enemies, because his enemies are clearly at work, and we're going to read of the, about them as we go through this psalm, they are accusing him. So we move to the second point. Look with me at verses 6 through 12. And not only that, we see not only a desperate cry for justice, we see a confident cry for protection in verses 6 through 12. In fact, the protection prayer is at the beginning of this section. The, the, the description of enemies takes place in the second part of this stanza. Verses 6 through 12, David's enemies have lied about him. They're accusing him falsely, and they appear to be a physical threat to David. You remember who David is? He is God's man. He is the man that God set up on the throne to be the king of Israel. He is a man after God's own heart. He is by no means perfect, but he trusts in the Lord God, and God had put him charge over the people of Israel. This could, ha this could be a prayer that he prayed before he became the king, when Saul is attacking him and accusing him, who is the king. It could be when he is already a king. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But we know that he has enemies. And here he prays for protection. Look with me at verse 6. And I want you to see his confidence, his confident cry for protection. I call upon you, for you will answer me, oh God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words, wondrously show your steadfast love, O oh Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me. As the apple of your eye, hide me under the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence. Now here's the description of the wicked. My deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have not surrounded they have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Friends, brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, you do have an enemy. That is Satan, the devil. 
and demons. And they want to destroy your faith. They want to so work in your life so that you disbelieve the goodness of God and believe a lie that it is better to do it your own way in your own terms. Satan wants you to believe that you are meant to live for yourself and for your own happiness and that you deserve comforts and pleasures in this life, that you deserve a pain-free life and existence, that you deserve other people and God to revolve everything around you. Satan wants you to believe and feel that. And he's a roaring lion, the New Testament says. He is seeking to devour your faith. He is trying to trick us. He is a liar, and he always has been a liar. And he wants us to doubt God and to disobey him. And so as we come to these psalms, we could just say, okay, even if I'm not the king of a nation, of God's nation, like David, none of us are, we can all, and, and we might even be in a situation where we're like, I can't sit here and say there's literal enemies trying to hurt me right now. There is an enemy, Satan, who is. And there is a battle as if you seek to live in a way that pleases God, that is going to attack you and seek to defeat you through things that are going on in your mind, things going on in your body things going around you and in your relationships. And this psalm and its confident cry for protection is one that you and I need to grab and we need to use these prayers in desperation as we look to the Lord our God. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Jesus teaches us to pray. At the very end of the Lord's Prayer, he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And here David cries in confidence. He says, I call upon the Lord. You will answer me. Oh, friends, I pray that we would grow, even if we are in the darkest times of discouragement or grief or pain, we would say, oh God, I cry out to you and you will hear me. Oh God, I know you will. I don't feel it right now, but I know and trust you will. And David confidently does this. He cries out to God. And in faith, he says, and that's the key, in faith, in a steadfast trust in God, not the circumstances that were plaguing him. Things were bad. David isn't writing this psalm saying, boy, I want to tell you about a time I had. It was bad. Now it's good. He's still in the midst of the pain and suffering. And he says, the Lord God is here. I, he will answer my prayer. And I want you to see in the middle of this, verses 7 and 8 and 9, these are like, if you're a Bible underliner or highlighter, these are verses you want to look at and meditate and maybe even memorize and ponder. And how David prays, he says, oh, Savior of those who seek refuge from your right hand, And he adds in the middle of that, from their adversaries. You see, God is shown from old to new, this book, that when he comes and he takes us into his own and makes us his people, he is the savior of our sins and he is the savior against our adversaries 
of all who seek refuge in him. All those who realize they're in danger of their soul, of their heart, their mind. They're going to be a mess. And they need a place that will be a shelter and a protection from that danger. It's called a refuge. And they run to the Lord their God as their refuge. And they can't do it without learning this thing called prayer. And that's this whole Psalter, the Psalms, are meant to teach us how to relate to God in a type of desperate, often praising, but sometimes desperate prayer to God. And notice what he then does in this confident prayer for, for protection. He says, oh God, you're my Savior who seeks refuge. And then in verse 8, keep me as the apple of your eye. The apple of your eye in ancient times was the pupil of the eye. I mean, I, I'm hoping to have a LASIK surgery in January. We'll see if that happens. I, I'm hoping to have that. And when I've gone in for some measurements, I mean, my, my eye, eyelids, they do not want that doctor to get close to the pupil of my eye. I mean, they had to call in an assistant to come in and hold those babies open. I mean, it was, it was because my, they're protecting, they're keeping the apple of my eye. And God used that metaphor not only here, and you see it in a few other places in the scriptures, and in Deuteronomy, when God was bringing his people out of slavery and saying, you're going to be now my children, you're my son Israel, you're my family, I'm going to take care of you forever, I'm going to keep you as the apple of my eye. My, you see, the eyelids are, they're, they're very, they're, their instinct is to say, no, you're not getting close to, to that pupil of the eye. God says, for you and me, I will not let anyone truly, eternally hurt you because you are mine. And David prays, oh God, keep me as the apple of your eye. That means protect me. Don't let the enemy truly get to me. He would say the enemy's already got to him, but not in a way that David knows he needs the protection as God. Would you protect me, save me, and keep me faithful? And then he uses a very a, a metaphor again. He says, hide me under the shadow of your wings. This is another phrase, beautiful phrase. If you did a search, and you, if you have a Bible app, or if you just go online and you searched um, wings and, and shelter, or wings even in the Psalms, you'll find wings quite often used for the way in which God says, when you become my people, I put my steadfast love on you that means my never-ending, I'm never going to let go, covenantal love. Even through trials and difficulties, those are all just part of shaping you. And then I will never let you go forever. And he says, I will shelter you with wings. I will be like the metaphor, you're like a, a baby eaglet at threat of a predator. And the mother eagle comes and puts its wings over the eaglet and says, no. Not, a, not even getting, not going there. And that is what God does, and that is what David, in his prayer for protection, does. And he says, oh God, please protect me. Cover me with the shelter of your wings, the shadow of your wings. I need them. 
Are you there this morning? I, I, if you're not, I know you're probably going to be there very soon or you've been there where you're, you're in a place where your soul is so disturbed, you're heartbroken, you're in pain, and you say, oh God, I need you to protect me because right now my heart is on fire and I need the shelter that will remove that fire and bring me peace and comfort. He says, from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. I love that phrase, O Savior of those who seek refuge. This is a God who shows, wondrously shows his steadfast love. I want you to see the third aspect of this psalm. As you move down towards the end, we're almost to the end of the psalm in verses 13 and 14. We see a final urgent cry for deliverance. You see the trend here. Is this, this, is, this whole psalm is a prayer from David. God, give me justice. God, give me protection. I believe you will. And thirdly, an urgent cry of deliverance. God, give me rescue. Look at verse 13. Arise, O Lord. Confront him. Subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand. O Lord, from men of the world. And then he describes the men of the world that are hounding him. The men of the world that are not of God. The men of the world that have actually caused him pain. He says, in fact, God, their portion is in this life. Good verse 14. You fill their womb with treasure. They're satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. I think what he's saying here is, God, I need you to come and rise up and subdue them, stop them from doing what they're doing to me. And by the way, they have their success and their comfort right now, but it will end. It's in this life only. David, in his prayers, pleads to God to take action. It reminds me of Psalm 3 when he said, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. There are times when you will find yourself praying that way on your bed, in your commute, going to school late at night because you can't sleep. Oh God, save me, rescue me. God, come and do this. Defeat the enemy. Now we, we come to a final Final stanza, verse 15. There, there's a turn here. He, he says in verse 14, there are the evil people that are wicked and their portion is in this life. God, you allow their lives to be filled with treasure and satisfaction with children and the abundance of the, passing on the abundance to their infants. Oh, you may allow that, God. But verse 15, he has an, an intimate expression of hope. Notice how the psalm ends. But as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I wake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And what David is saying is, as for me, I'm the one who has run to you for refuge. I'm the apple of your eye. I am like the eaglet under the shadow of your wings. I'm the one that you said you'll wondrously show your love to. 
I'm the one that's crying out to a God that I confidently know is going to help me. As for me, I have sought to not use my lips for deceit. I have not been violent. I have looked to the Lord my God, and he's my refuge. As for me, I'm going to get to see you, God. I'm going to behold your face in righteousness. It is a righteousness that you have been given to me. It is a righteousness that I have sought to be loyal to your name and I will behold you and I will look at you and when I see you, that's all that's going to matter. And he says something somewhat strange, but if we understand and dig into it, we see I think what he means here. He says, and when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is an interesting phrase. It is a, this verse, entire verse, was on the great, great tombstone of Jonathan Edwards, a great preacher of the 1700s. His daughter died at like 17 caring for a young missionary, and she got tuberculosis and died. He was heart, heartbroken, buried his daughter, if you can imagine, and put these verses, as for me, I shall behold you in righteousness, your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. What did David mean here? He says, I'm in distress, but I will see the Lord and everything will be better. When I awake, what can that mean? Well, it could mean that David's praying this in the middle of the night and he's saying, when I wake up in the morning, I'm gonna feel better. But I don't think that's probably what he's doing. There's no indication that this is a night psalm. Some of the psalms actually are. Or it could mean that when I wake out of the haze of my trial, have you ever been in a trouble and you're like, everything just feels like a haze and then you come out of it and you're like, whew, now I'm awake. Could mean that, but I think he means here a, a metaphor that's used in the Old Testament and even in the New of this going to sleep is dying. But when I wake from death, that's the resurrection when God raises him. And in the Old Testament, they believed and had hope that God was going to raise the dead. I think David means when I awake from death, I will be raised and I will see the Lord's faith, face, the very Lord in whom has made me the apple of his eye, the very Lord who's covered me with his wings, the very Lord who wondrously shows his love to me, the very Lord that in the midst of my enemies, he still loves me and he cares for my just my cause that I've been treated so wrongly. This God loves me and I will be satisfied way more than my enemies who get their fill in this life. I will be satisfied. You want to know what true satisfaction and happiness is? It's seeing him and knowing him and becoming like him in his likeness. I will be made like him. As 1 John 3, 2 says, when we see him, we will be like him because we will see him as he is and we'll be transformed into his image, those who are true believers. David knows and believes in this joy, and I believe that we see the true heart of David here, the very heart that in the chapter before, we saw this way back at Easter, but Psalm 16, he says, God, you made known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. 
In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand is pleasures forevermore. David is demonstrating and showing us the hope, the miraculous hope of a Christian, of a true believer, that in the face of even death, he would say, but all I want truly to desire is to desire God and God alone. He is my true good. So David prays for justice desperately. He prays for protection confidently. He prays for deliverance. He does it with an urgency. And yet he expresses, God, I love you so much that all I want is to see you. Do we have that? I want to end with giving you these four lessons. Four, I say it this way. So what can we learn from Psalm 17? Here are four. Number one, God allows his people to experience temporary injustices. God is going to allow you in this life to experience temporary injustices. I know some of you have faced them very severely to the point of dealing with massive years of legal troubles and difficulties, and it was not your fault. It was injustice. It was not fair from a human level. Some of you will be lied about, gossiped, misunderstood, treated poorly. You will experience things in this life, and this psalm reminds us that God's people, even those who are living in obedience to God, will experience injustices. They will be falsely accused. They'll be slandered. They'll be killed for righteousness' sake. There are people every day in this world dying because they innocently are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and they're being killed for their faith. Remember Job? He was afflicted with God's permission. God allowed Job to be afflicted, but he was a righteous man. He was faithful unto the Lord. But his, at a human level, his afflictions weren't fair. Satan attacked him and afflicted him and tried to tempt him to turn away from God. He didn't deserve that kind of treatment and suffering at the hand of the devil. And Jesus teaches us on the Sermon on the Mount as he is giving his charter to us disciples. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and say all manner against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, we are so naturally inclined, and the Satan wants to tempt us with it, that we so believe that we deserve a pain-free, no-suffering life in our relationships, in our body, in everything. And we believe that people and God and everybody else around us should arrange everything to meet our expectations. And we believe that others should adore us and understand us just like we want them to. And God says, that is not how, you're putting your hope in that. I want your hope in something different. And so I'm going to allow trials and afflictions to happen. This psalm reminds us, we will face temporary injustices in this life. You'll be misunderstood and disliked and it won't, you won't deserve it. There'll be injustices, and I call them 
temporary injustices because someday God will make all things right. The hope of, I love how Mark Dever says it, the hope of the Christian is incredible. As a Christian, you have no reason to be finally discouraged by all the injustices that you experience. You will outlast every trouble that you ever face. You can be confident of that if you're in Christ. The second lesson I want you to see is being right with God matters more than anything. Oh, I hope you're sitting here and you say, I need to be right with God. I want to be right with God or I am right with God. David says, hear my right cause, my right just cause. At the very end, he says, I shall behold you your face in righteousness. David is right with God and he knows that he's, what's infinitely more important than being right with other people is being right with God. He wasn't right with his enemies, but he was right with God. To be right before God is all that matters, friends. But we're not wired that way. We wanna be, want others to be pleased with us, even at the expense of God. If God is for you, who can be against you? No one successfully, ultimately. I hope you are right with God in the most fundamental way. That is one of my callings as a pastor is for you to someday stand before God, right before him, ready to die, ready to face your judge, and that is justified not justified because you determined you were going to live a right path and you got there. No one does that in their self-determination. We are made right with God by the provision of God's absolute, amazing, and free grace through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ who came at Christmas. His blood was shed for us. We are born sinners and we are not right with God. We re rebel and we do our own thing. And God has made a way to bring us rebels into a forgiving status and made, brought into his covenant. And he makes us right with him, not based on our behavior or our performance or our reformation, but based on the gift of his son at Christmas. He came to die. He came to be a savior, to save his people from their sins. He came to be a substitute savior, to be a substitute, sin substitute for us. If you have been justified, and that's all that matters, being right with God, it starts to change your behavior. Oh, what matters, friends, is that we are right with God. I hope that what matters to you more than anything in your affliction is God, though they're against me, you're for me. I'm right with you. Friends, if you please God, it doesn't matter who you displease. Please note that. If you please God, it doesn't matter who you displease. And if you displease God, it doesn't matter 
who you please. There'll come a day when all that matters is that God was pleasing, and the only way you please him is by looking to his son, Jesus. And when you look to his Jesus, you do it by faith in, the son, in Jesus, and he starts to change you from the inside out, and you start to want to obey him. You realize you love him, and you're seeking him for his sake. There is being right with God matters more than anything. Third, earnest prayer is the occupation of the believer. I say it this way, earnest prayer. What I mean by that is not just some, I checked it off my list kind of pray, praying. You see the kind of praying he's doing here? He is, it's not fancy prayer. It's not, I have to have the right kind of formula and say the right type of words like you, pastor, kind of prayer. No, it's this earnest, I need you, God, and I can't let you go until you help me. Oh, God, I look to you. And this is, I use the word occupation of a true believer. It is what we do in our life. It is our job the rest of our life. You go to work praying, and you drive to work praying, and you go home praying, you go to school praying, you go to bed praying, you wake up praying, you spend seasons in prayer, you learn that I cannot live without prayer. And this whole Psalms, and I could say this is a lesson probably on almost all the Psalms or many of the Psalms, the earnest prayer is the occupation of a believer. We pray with desperation and confidence. We pray using his promises. We pray crying out to him in desperation and in confidence. We ask for protection and needed. We pray and we pray and we believe that God says, he means what he says, ask and it shall be given to you. If you, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? The last lesson I, I want to point you to really focuses in on verse 15 of the psalm. But number four, desiring God more than deliverance is the direction God is taking you and me. God didn't save us so that we would live the rest of our lives with all the desires that everybody else has. And then we get to have a heaven. And oh, if God's there, that's great too. But I just want heaven. I don't want to go to hell. It's not what he's doing in our lives. God is saving us to change our desires and to change our desires, not just so we'll have some wholesome desires, holier than thou desires, be a do-gooder, love the Bible. All of those things might be good. He is saving us. The direction he is bringing us is to change our desires so that we say, I don't know when it happened, but God has been doing this thing in me, this, this work in me that I actually want him now more than I even want him to answer the prayer of deliverance. I, I'm praying for healing from cancer or from this affliction or I, 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 I want this deliverance with my children. I want this restoration with my family or I want this depression to be removed or this mental illness taken away or whatever it is. But God, I've actually come to the point where that's secondary. I just desire you. Where'd that come from? Before, I just wanted you to take care of my problems so that you could rescue my kingdom. I guess I'm surrendering my kingdom to you, and I desire you. And that's what you get in this 15th verse when he says, he says, but as for me, but as for me, I, I'm going to behold your face. 
I'm going to behold your face in my righteousness. It is when I wake, I will be satisfied in your likeness. Friends, where God is moving us to say, I desire God more than rescue and deliverance. I desire, desire God more than the, the freedom from the pain that I'm deal, dealing with today. Oh, that pain is drawing me to God and he's going to do a work in me, a direction of changing even my desires so that I can say like the psalmist later on, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth that I desire besides you. My strength and my heart, they fail, but you are my portion forever. Those are the type of people that when lost unbelievers come in and say, who are you? You you love God more than you love life itself. And we can point them to say, it's real. He's real. It's, It's not just life insurance for heaven. It's a relationship with God that someday we will be in the presence of it and we will be made in his likeness and it will be awesome. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we sing and cry out to you a lament and a cry from Psalm 46, I pray that you would draw your people here to desire you more than deliverance to make prayer the occupation of our lives. I pray, God, that you would help us to be right with you through Jesus Christ as we will face the difficulties in this life, the injustices. Help us now in Jesus' name, amen.